All right, church, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, please turn them to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We are excited to jump back into our series in 1 Corinthians. And this morning we're going to be in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. In these verses, we are reminded again of the theme that we have seen so far, and that being God's call to his church to pursue unity together and gospel centrality. And I'm excited for what God has for us in these five verses this morning. And so if you, if you have your Bibles, you can please read along with me, or the words will be on me, or on the screen above me. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required that stewards, that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Now before we dive into our text this morning, I want to quickly recap where we have been at leading up to chapter 4. You might remember from previous chapters that the church in Corinth is a divided church. And one of the many divisions happening in this church are arising from their allegiances to various church leaders. So you have some who say, I am um, allegiant to, to Apollos. Some claim to follow Cephas. Others say, I follow Paul. Some say, well, I actually only follow Christ which is much more prideful than it actually sounds on the surface. And so, so Paul has been addressing these issues, and in chapter 4 now, Paul seems to be speaking to another group of people in the church who are, who are divided not because of their strong allegiance to Christ, or not because of strong allegiance to Paul, but because they actually dislike Paul. Apparently there are some in the church who are, who are judging him by comparing him to other leaders in the church or, or other public figures in the day. And we don't know for sure what issue these people had with Paul, but it seems likely that there are many in the church who were divisive against Paul because he was not an eloquent speaker. And in the city of Corinth, there was little that they valued more than eloquence of speech, which, side note, makes me grateful I'm not preaching to a church in Corinth this morning. Um, but, but whatever these reasons were, there, there were many in the church who were creating tension and division because they either valued pastors too much or they valued them at too little or they were judging them in, in ungodly ways. And so, so Paul in this passage, he's, he's continuing to speak into their lives and he's instructing the church on how they ought to think about pastors. Now I'll be honest here, as I was preparing this message this week, I was struggling a little bit to get excited about my message because for one thing, it's kind of awkward for a pastor to stand and to speak to a church about how they ought to think about pastors. But another reason is that, and this is, this is by God's grace, that the divisions and the judgments that Paul's church, that, he was, that Paul's experiencing from his church, uh, we aren't experiencing now, I'm not, I'm not saying that this passage does not apply to us this morning, but I'm just saying that we aren't feeling the same tension that Paul is feeling here. 
And to that, we just want to say thank you. We love being pastors of this church. The, the love, the support that we receive each and every week makes it a joy to be your pastors. It's a privilege to serve here at this church. Thank you. As grateful as we are for that, we do know that divisions, though, in churches, divisions in leadership, in churches over leadership, can be massive issues in the church in America, in churches throughout the world. And, and we here at this church, we are not immune from that danger. Many of us, in fact, maybe most of us, have at some point in our lives been burned by leadership, or we have experienced division over leadership in the church. And so, so unity in the church, godly leadership in the church, is something that we must fight to maintain. And if we're going to fight for it, we need to know what God's word says about it. And so even though this passage is, is mainly about what it means to be a faithful pastor, there is much for all of us in these five verses this morning. So here's, the, here's where we're going this morning. Here's, here's the main idea of my message this morning, is that faithful pastors find their calling in the reality of the cross. Faithful pastors find their calling in the reality of the cross. And we're looking at three points this morning. First, the calling of a pastor. Second, the obligation of a pastor. And third, the confidence of a pastor. So first, the calling of a pastor. In the opening verse in this chapter, Paul gives, again, instruction to the church on how they are to think about their leaders. And this is what he says. He says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And again, Paul's instructing the church. He's saying, this is how you should think about leaders in the church. This is how you should think about the role of pastors. And the first thing that Paul says is that pastors are to be regarded as servants. Now, if you're reading the ESV Bible here, which is the one that I'm reading, the translators have taken that, that Greek word and they've translated into English as servant. But the word servant has lots of words in the Greek that can be translated into servant. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna nerd out on Greek here just for a second. But, but for example, there, there are lots of words. You, you might have the word in Greek like the word diakonos. And that's a word in Greek that, that can be translated just as uh, uh, servant, as in someone who just, a common person who just obeys the commands of another person. You might have the word okeites, which referred to the, a common household servant, so someone who would hire themselves out um, to service to a household. Um, you have another word in Greek, doulos, which is closer to the idea that we would think of, of slave, somebody who is forced to work for another without pay, oftentimes to pay off a debt. And so there, there are lots of words in Greek that can be translated into English as the word servant, but none of those words are used here. The word that is used here is the word hupeertis. Hupeertis literally refers to the lowest type of slave that was found in that society. If you've seen war movies that depict kind of battles back in like first century, like kind of Greek biblical times, um, movies like Ben-Hur or other movies, 
Ben-Hur is the only movie I can think of of the first century. But, but, but if you think of movies back in, in this time, um, you might have visions in your mind of, of wars kind of out on seas, and, and you have these ships of wars that are powered by, by men rowing oars, right? The, and, and oftentimes these, ship was, these ships would have um, uh, multiple layers, multiple rows of men who are called galley slaves powering these ships with these oars. And uh, the guys at the, at the bottom level of those rows, so, so the, the bottom level of galley slaves on these ships, they were called hupraites. Lowest level, galley slaves. This is the word that Paul uses here. It was a word that had become synonymous with, with the lowest form of, of servants or slaves in that society. It was one of, of absolute subordinates to somebody else who were, who were obligated to do the bidding of the one who commanded them. It was a word that was completely devoid of, of glory or glamour or prestige. This is the word that Paul uses to describe himself as a pastor, as an apostle even. When he says, when you consider me, consider me the lowest level of servant. Now, why does Paul speak of himself and, and, and all pastors in this way? Well, it's not because pastors not to in any way be looked up to. No, no he says that when, when we are servants of Christ, what it means is that our identity is, as, is under absolute authority to Christ. And we're going to talk more about what this means, but our allegiance to Christ is above anything else in this life. And if our allegiance is to Christ, that means that there is an obligation to do what he commands. If, if for instance, if, if you sign up to serve in the military, this brings certain restrictions and obligations to your life, right? Like if they say you're going to boot camp this week, you go to boot camp that week. Like you're not free to decide you're going to go on vacation that week instead, right? That will not work out for you if you try to do that, Right? And if they say, you're going to go overseas to this country, you go overseas, right? You're not free to, to pick what, what war, what battles you're going to fight, you know. You are, you are obligated to the one in command over you. And church, our obligation is to Christ and his will for our lives. And, and of course, this is, this is true for all believers, right? It's not like pastors alone are called to allegiance to Christ, now, if, if you claim faith in Christ, you claim allegiance to Christ. And that is true for all of us. We together find our allegiance in Jesus. And there's, there's no hierarchy here. It's not like it's Christ and then pastors and then church members as if pastors are some, uh, some elite class of believers. No, Paul is actually almost saying the opposite here. He's saying that if we're all considered servants of Christ, how much more are pastors considered servants of Christ? How much more should pastors be obligated to do what Christ calls them to do? And all this has has many implications on our leadership and and on our lives. If, If our allegiance is to him alone as pastors, that means that we are we are not free to teach or lead in a way that is seeking to be pleasing to the world. We, we are not free to make the church be what we want it to be. We are, we are not free to prioritize the things that we personally feel are most important. 
And we certainly are not free to make the church about us. We're not free to lead in a way which prioritizes ourself in leadership, which can be a danger in leadership, right? When it comes to leadership of any kind, and this would be true in the church as well, but the flesh is gonna wanna use the opportunity to make that leadership about oneself or, or prioritize pleasing people around us. We're making it about our desires, our reputation, or about our glory. And again, this is not just pastors, this is, this is human nature, right? But as pastors, there's, there's a very real part of us that wants to prioritize being liked or, or having the appearance of being respected. Very real part of me wants to make church mostly centered around Jason Stoll. But that is a slippery slope that leads towards ultimate allegiance to oneself and to the destruction of the church and to dishonoring Christ. And that cannot be, church, because our allegiance is to Jesus. And church, we want you to know that as your pastors, this is who we seek to be. We want to follow Christ. We wanna give our lives to living under his rule and his authority. And as much as you see that in us, we hope, we pray that this would give you confidence and joy to be a part of this church. We are to be regarded as servants of Christ. And once again, being regarded as a servant, it comes with obligations. And this is really where Paul is going here. In the rest of verse one, Paul describes what a pastor who is under the authority of Christ is called to give their lives to. And this leads us to point two, which is the obligation of a pastor. Paul continues in verse one, and he says, this is how we should be regarded as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So the obligation of a pastor is to steward the mysteries of God. So two things here. First, what does it mean to be a steward of something? And second, what are these mysteries of God? Well, first, to to steward something, it it means to, and and again, we're talking about, about this in the context of a servant in relation to the one in command over them. And it means to take something that is given to you and to use it, to steward it in a way which they wish for you to use it. And as pastors, we are called to be stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, now, now what are the mysteries of God? That's, a, that's an interesting phrase, right? Well, well, the, well, by the mysteries of God, Paul is referring to the truths that God has revealed in his word and particularly the truths about Christ and the gospel. This is called a mystery because on our own, we are, we are blind to the gospel. It does not make sense to us. It is not attractive to us. Paul says in chapter one that, that, that the way of salvation is foolishness to the world. And so what we needed was for our eyes to be opened to that which was once hidden to us. And that is what God has done through the work of Christ on the cross. The way of salvation has been revealed to us in the scriptures. And by the power of his spirit, that which was once foolishness to us has now been seen to be our greatest hope. The salvation that Christ has brought us through his death and his life and his resurrection, that is what pastors are called to be about, to teach these things, 
to lead the church in knowing and loving these things. That's the primary reason that the church exists. The church has been called by God to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples. Remember in Matthew 28 when when Christ had risen from the dead, he gathers all his disciples together and he commissions them to begin the New Testament church. This is the mission that he gives him. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is what the church is to be about. The church is is not a a social club. The church is not primarily a, a social justice warrior. The church is not a place where you just come to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Uh, These are all good things, and it's good for these things to be a part of what the church is and to be in the church, but the church primarily is a place where the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed and enjoyed. What the world needs the most, what the church needs the most, is the revelation of Christ found in this word. And as Christians, and as pastors, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the mystery of God revealed in this book, that is the priority. Why? Because there is nothing more important than the hope we have in Christ, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, that he is mighty to save. This is the greatest news that brings the greatest joy for those in greatest need. And church, we want you to know that this is what we are committed to stewarding above all else. We have have lots of desires for our church. There are lots of things that we want to grow in as a church. And we want to work hard at serving our church and leading the church in these things. But the thing that we want to work hardest at is proclaiming the truth of God's word. We want you to know that is our highest priority. And we want your highest priority to be knowing and loving God's word. And we want you to hold us to making that our highest priority. Last weekend, the leadership team, Joel and myself and Sean and Drew and Everett, we went on a a prayer retreat together, which we do every year. And one of the things that we prayed about the most and talked about the most was how our church can grow in loving God's word more this coming year. We've got exciting ideas, or we've got ideas that we are excited about, about how we can do that. Because again, this is not just for pastors. For all of us, our allegiance to Christ includes knowing his word. But not just on Sundays. Not just on Sundays, but but in the quiet of our own homes, in our marriages, in in our friendships. Our lives need to be saturated with scriptures. How else will we love Christ? How else will we grow in obedience to him? How else will we grow to proclaim the gospel? And if this is required of all of us, it is certainly required of pastors. And church, if we ever value something more than this, if we ever prioritize anything more than the gospel, if we ever teach anything that is contrary to the truths in this word, then we fail as pastors. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2 says, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. 
What he means is that the mark of a faithful pastor is prioritizing and proclaiming the truth of the gospel. That is the, the wonderful and the, and the joyful obligation of a pastor. And church, this is so much more important than having church leaders who are dynamic speakers or who are super gifted in other ways or who can, can gather a crowd by their, by their personalities. It's not bad to have leaders who are gifted in these ways, but that's just not what God prioritizes as his church. And that's good news for us as a pastoral team, let me tell you. Because as you know, as far as pastoral teams go, we are not super impressive, right? We don't have a whole lot going on for us. You've heard Joel speak before, right? I mean, <laughs> he would have been run out of Corinth a long time ago. He, he takes five steps up there and he runs out of breath, right? Like, we, we are not an impressive team, right? We don't have a whole lot going on for us. Uh, Drew's pretty good at guitar, so that's something. Um, Joel has a pickup truck. That was a good upgrade for him back in the day when he got that. But that's, that's kind of all we have going for us. Actually, the, the leadership team, or the pastoral team's wives are pretty impressive. We do have that going for us. Some of us have that going for us, anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, but that's, that's all we got. We got a guitar, we got a pickup truck, we have some women. This is now like a bad country song now. But that's it. That's all we have, church. We are not that impressive. But being impressive is not what God calls us to. Because what good is any of those things without the gospel? It is nothing. The gospel alone is what we hope in. The gospel alone is what saves, church. The gospel alone is what brings cold, dead hearts to life. The gospel alone is what redeems sinners and forgives sin. The gospel alone is what brings conviction of sin and produces righteousness in believers. The gospel alone is what saves marriages. The gospel alone is what gives us hope of eternal life with Christ in heaven. That's why Paul says in verse, in verse three, in chapter three, let no one boast in men, but only in Christ. Christ alone is our boast, church. Christ alone is who saves. Christ alone is our hope and our boast. And church, this is what we want you to know about us as pastors. We really believe that with all our heart. We know that we are just servants of Christ. And as servants, obligated. And it is a joyful obligation, but we are obligated to be faithful to the task that he has given us, which is to steward the mysteries of God, to know and to love and to teach the gospel. And if we stop being about that, we fail as pastors, church, and we want to be faithful. So would you pray for us in that? Would you encourage us in that? Would you follow us in that? That we might be the church that God has called us to be. And we need God's grace for that church. As we turn back now to our text, we see that the, the pastor's calling, we see that it's to, is to serve Christ, and our obligation is to, is to steward the mysteries of God. And now I want to close by looking at, at what gives a pastor confidence to do this. Which leads us to point three, the confidence of a pastor. 
As we turn now to verses three through four, we remember again that, that Paul is speaking to a church that is, that is causing divisions because of their worldly values and their, their unnecessary criticism of Paul. And he says this in verses three through four. He says, but with me is a small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself for I'm not aware of anything against me, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now there's a lot that needs to be explained here. And at first reading, this statement might sound a little arrogant from Paul, right? Like when Paul says, it's a small thing that I should be judged by you. Is he saying he just doesn't care what anybody else thinks? He's just gonna do whatever he wants? Well, well clearly no, right? Paul has made it very clear his confidence is not in himself. He's a servant of Christ, obligated to live as Christ calls him to live. That's how he wants to be thought of. So if anything, Paul is only taking a further stance of humility before the church right now. When he says it's a small thing that I should be judged by you, he's not boasting in himself. He's responding to a culture of the day, a culture which the church had, ad- had adapted, which is quick to judge in unhealthy ways either by valuing church leadership too much or by judging too harshly. So Paul says, look, my allegiance is to Christ. He is the one who I am called to please. He is the one that I must truly answer to. Now, now church, hear me on this. This does not mean that it's wrong for a church to ever judge the actions or the teachings of a pastor. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5, Paul actually speaks to the need to remove pastors if they prove themselves unfaithful. And in many places in the New Testament, Paul calls out specific leaders for for teaching things contrary to the gospel, contrary to God's word. So pastors are not above correction. Pastors are not above being removed from their role if they prove unfaithful to the gospel. But that does not mean that, that we should be quick and to be hasty to judge. There is a a warning here to the church, particularly when it comes to judging too harshly or picking sides too quickly and creating division over these things, especially when it comes to judging the motives of someone. And church, our culture loves to do these things, right? We in the world, we, we love to judge things, right? If, if you were on the internet at all this week, I'm sure you've seen this video of Will Smith at the Oscars getting up and smacking Chris Rock in the face for a joke that was made about his wife. If you have not seen it, it's a pretty intense video. But what's almost more shocking than this event is the quickness of people to pick sides and to judge these actions one way or the other. Within minutes, if, if, like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the whole world had like picked sides and, 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 were, and, were, and some were claiming that, that Will was a hero for defending his wife and standing up for her honor. Others were saying that he should be thrown in prison, that they had lost all respect for him. Some were claiming that, that Chris Rock was, was a, a, a pure gentleman for, for his not retaliating against Will Smith. Some claimed that he got what he deserved. Like, whew. We judge quickly. And now, 
obviously this example has nothing to do with church leadership, but it's an example of how fast our culture can be to assume motives and to take sides and to, and to judge motives. And this can happen in our church as well. The, the judging, I mean, not the, the fire of the Oscars. Well, I guess, I guess that could happen. So I don't know. If Joel ever gets up and smacks me while I'm preaching, we'll, we'll have to deal with it at that point, I guess. But, but a judgmental spirit where we think we can know the motives of another person must be avoided. Right, the, the, the main idea here is that Paul is speaking to how a, a leader in the church should be viewed, but there are applications for all of us. Gossip in the church, either about pastors or other leaders, must be avoided. The judgmental spirit should not take place in the church. We need to avoid the danger of comparison, whether it's comparing leadership personalities or, or idolizing a particular style of preaching from your favorite YouTube pastor where you then become discontent with the preaching in local churches. There can be tendencies to jump ship easily as we, as we church hop, trying to find that church that reaches this certain level of impressiveness by world standards. These can, be, these can be worldly ways of thinking. These things can do damages to churches. And it can happen here if we are not discerning and cautious in our judgments. That can be a hard line to walk, right? Because again, it's not that we don't ever make judgments, but we don't want to be a judgmental people towards others, towards leaders. Paul says in verse three, I don't even judge myself. Meaning, it's hard to know our own motives. It's hard to know whether the things that we value in life are right, much less the motives and the values of others. We are not good judges, And Paul says, ultimately, it is the Lord who judges me. Meaning that God alone is the one who knows whether we have been faithful. God alone knows the motives of the human heart. He is the one who will disclose the purposes of the heart on that last day. So Paul says to the church, be careful in your judgments. And Paul himself is careful not to place his confidence in the, judge, in the judgments of others. He says, I find my confidence in that my allegiance is to Christ. I'm called to serve him, not to please the world, not even to please the church, at least not even as his highest priority, but to be faithful to steward the gospel. And Paul's comfort is that God himself will be the judge on the final day. Look at what Paul says here. He says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Now that might sound like a strange thing to take comfort in, doesn't it? God is coming to bring to light the things in the darkness, to disclose the purposes of the heart, That can sound almost frightening, right? Like you kind of expect the next thing for Paul to say is on that final day, he's gonna receive a rebuke from the Lord because none of us are pure in heart. All of us have failures and struggles and sins that we're not even aware of. And so we deserve nothing from God. 
Even the most faithful pastor is still just a servant. And there's much blame to be found even in the best service towards Christ. But the heart of God here is a comfort to Paul. It can be a comfort to us because on that last day, God's heart is not to dispense judgment, it's to reward faithfulness. Verse five concludes with then each one will receive his commendation from God. Not condemnation, commendation. His heart is to reward. His heart is to praise. His heart is to commend. What a gracious and merciful Savior we serve. And that was Paul's confidence. He lives not for the praise of man, but for the praise of God. His allegiance was to the gospel. And his service was to Christ. And by God's grace, may that be true for all of us. As a Christian, and as a pastor, as a a struggling servant of Christ, I so long for that day, the day that all who are faithful in Christ have to look forward to, when we will stand before our gracious, merciful judge and hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Church, would you pray with me?